This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan K. Part opinion writer for the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Today, we're talking about the U.S. economy, manufacturing, and jobs. And who better to talk about all that than the Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh. Secretary Walsh, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Jonathan, thank you for having me today. So um, we did see interesting numbers in the most recent jobs report issued last week. I'm sorry, 26,000 manufacturing jobs were added in September, but the industry is still down by 353,000 jobs since February 2020. What's the overall state of the manufacturing sector today? Well, certainly we want to see uh, more involvement and employment in the manufacturing sector. Uh, we have some work there to do to get back to to a level set. Uh, and then, you know, as I, one of the opening remarks here, uh, the president has, you know, two plans uh, by American uh, in, in creating more opportunities for supply chain in the United States of America and manufacturing. So not only do we want to get back to where we were pre-pandemic, but also the president's goal and agenda, quite honestly, is to go far beyond that. Uh, we saw we're seeing a lot of short um, it, we see some issues now in supply chains as we move forward here. Uh, we want to be able to bring those jobs back to America. So you you mentioned by by American, which uh, I want you to go into more on that because my next question to you, you know, was going to be what is the Biden administration's plan to create jobs and incentivize upgrading manufacturing plants and equipment? No, certainly the president has a, a task force that's put together now that's looking at how do we create opportunities and, and buy more more products here in America. We've seen during the pandemic uh, a real problem in the supply chain, uh, our dependence on foreign uh, supplies uh, and, 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 and trade uh, has been uh, obviously highlighted big time here in this pan during this pandemic. Uh, the pandemic has, has put, a, put a big spotlight on a lot of inequalities in, in our country, uh, and manufacturing is one of those. And I'll give you one example. I was out in Toledo, Ohio, uh, a couple weeks ago. I was at uh, First Solar. It's a it's a solar manufacturing plant. Uh, they have one facility now. They're building a second facility. Uh, they're going to create 2,000 permanent jobs, 500 construction jobs, uh, and First Solar is working towards making sure that the low wage in that job is over $15 an hour. So it's an opportunity to create solar panels here in the United States of America. So our dependence on other countries uh, will be less. Uh, we need to do more of that. We need to amplify that work. Uh, I was in New Jersey. Uh, they're, they're building a wind turbine farm in New Jersey. Uh, and again, the product being built here in the United States of America, a lot of it will be shipped overseas, but a lot of it will be created here in the United States of America as we shift our economy uh, to the green, a green economy and to alternative power sources. Again, building these the, the, these types of uh, equipment and materials here in the United States of America is what's important. Uh, buy America, build America, and the supply chain kind of go hand in hand. And, and the president wants to, is, is setting goals to make sure that it's not going to happen overnight. Over the course of the next several years, we want to be able to be more dependent on on product products made here in the United States of America by Americans. Uh, and we have to look at the industries and how do we strengthen those industries. Part of that, those investments will come out of the Build Back Better uh, reconciliation package. There's money in there for job training. So there's a whole series. We just can't, unfortunately, snap our fingers and say, OK, here we go. We're going to start doing more and, more and more manufacturing. But the president and the committee that's been put together, the task force, uh, has a plan as we move forward here. 
Uh, Secretary Walsh, I want you to de demystify some things. I'm going to point out some key words you used in that last answer that you gave. You used solar, wind turbines. Um, you used the word shift, but I think it was like shifting in, um, um, in, in the workforce or the labor force. How do you demystify for people who might see folks in the manufacturing sector who have been manufacturing and producing one sort of thing and now see that everything is changing and folks are talking about wind turbines and solar panels and how and I might have a hard time seeing how their skills can transfer from one to the other. What is the administration doing to make sure that folks who are in manufacturing have the skill sets to transition from, say, 20th century manufacturing to 21st century manufacturing. No, thank you. I, I was laughing as you were talking to me because I thought you were going to talk about uh, the environmental shift from from fossil fuel uh, to alternative energy sources. So, uh, well, I mean, that is to... that's kind of part of it because also you've no, got folks it, who are in the coal industry who are worried about you know what does this mean? It really is. So, so let me let me just a couple of examples. Uh, I I was out in. Um, uh, it was Wisconsin. I was talking to a roundtable of labor leaders, and I was talking about retraining workers into the to the green economy and how do you retrain workers. And some of the trades were, were there said, "Wait a second, we don't need to be retrained." We and what they meant was they have the facilities to and, and the curriculums to be able to change the workers and what the workers do. A lot of workers will change and adapt to the circumstance and the job that's in front of them. Now it might be different materials and it might be different tools that they're using, but you can train workers here at the Department of labor, really what we're looking at, and we're looking at our job training programs and our workforce development programs, I think that we have to do it differently than we have in the past. What do I mean by that? We have to do, be more intentional about making sure that the programs we put in place, there's actually a job at the end of those programs. And I think that American workers and people can can be, can be I don't want to be say reskilled because that might be inappropriate, you know, educated in the sense of how do you change industries? People do it all the time. When my father started working construction in 1956, he came to Boston, he started working construction. There was a lot more people on the job. There was a lot less machine on the job. There was not a lot of technology on the job. He worked in the industry for 35 years. Uh, when it, towards the end of his career, there was a lot more machinery and technology, and, and the workers adapted, and they were trained in the new, new, new technology to be able to deliver buildings. Buildings were done faster, same size buildings. They were done faster, more efficient in some cases. Uh, it, it, but, but what it is, it, it's, it's the industry. So I think that we really have to think about, when, when you think about what's going on, I'm sure we'll talk about it. You know, the, the unemployment in the country, the 10 million jobs that are open and, and how are we going to fill those jobs? That's a real serious question. A lot of it is people looking at their careers and what are they going to do? There are people that might have been working in the hospitality industry that all of a sudden went to bed and woke up the next day and realized, wait a second, you know, over the pandemic, this is not really what I want to do. I'm not I'm not. I'm not fulfilling my career what I want to be. I'm not earning good wages. I'm working hard and I want to take my attention and go into a different area. And what people will do is they will learn to either get retrained or skilled or, or, or learn that industry. There's, that's no different than manufacturing. There's, there's no different than when you're working on a car that that's, you know, a typical get gas vehicle that use use gas today and we're going to switch that vehicle eventually and, and be building more electric vehicles. Again, it's training workers on how to do it. When I was in first solar, just let me. Well, sorry, one quick story. Was yeah, first go, go ahead, Secretary. And, and as I was walking through, we we wanted there's two. They're building a new factory, and there's one there that's there right now. 
So we walked through and there was a worker there and I was asking the, 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 the manager, the CEO of the company, you know, what, what's the educational skill of the people working here? And he said, we have everything from entry level to PhD working in the facility. And there, there was a woman working and she was setting frame to where the solar panels would be laid onto. And I said to the, the CEO, will this be her job for the rest of her life? And his response to me was, no, it's not, because she's learning how to set the solar panels, but she has every opportunity through the efforts of the company to move her up, whether it's on a production line and into other parts of the organization. So people, people, people will learn. If people want to move into different areas, we can help them, give them the skills they need, give them the education they need to move into those different areas. And so in, in, in your answer there, um, because again, you anticipated something I was going to ask more broadly, and that is, you know, we had a story in the paper just the other day about the so-called the, um, the Great Resignation, how, as yeah. you just pointed out, there are lots of people as a result of the pandemic taking stock of their lives and what they're doing and deciding, you know what? I don't want to be in the restaurant industry anymore. I don't want to be in the service industry anymore. I don't want to be in manufacturing anymore. And so you have the great resignation, which is piling on top of a worker shortage, which is piling on top of a whole lot of other things. As Secretary of Labor, how are you dealing with these multiple crises that, I mean, just even one of them would, would take up the full time, your full tenure there at the Department of Labor. So how are you dealing with the great resignation and all the other things that are attended with that? Well, I, you know, I think I look at this two ways. One is I look at the immediate uh, concerns in front of us with, with many of these jobs, essential jobs that need to be filled as we move forward in different industries, such as hospitality, um, adult care, uh, nursing, programs like that. Uh, you know, I, I deal, we think about how do we make sure that we have the, 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 the amount of workers we need to keep our economy moving forward. Um, part of that is going to be short term with investments in job training and working with cities and towns all across America and industry all across America. But, but in the long run, I also view it as a potential opportunity. Uh, you know, President Biden, when he ran for president and when he got elected president, uh, he, he used the phrase build back better. Uh, and really, the, the intention behind Build Back Better was creating pathways into the middle class. Many of the people uh, in, the, in, in, in the great resignation, if you will, many of the people, some of the people in, the, in that category work in high paying jobs and they're realizing that they want to change their work life balance. They've been working, you know, 15, 16 hours a day and they want to, the pandemic came, they want to change. The majority of those workers are working in low income jobs. They're not making a lot of money. And they want, they're thinking to themselves, and I think a lot of people did this, including myself during the pandemic, we had a lot of time to think, like the old days, but a lot of time to have dinner at the kitchen table at five o'clock at night, like I did as a kid, and a lot of families did in America. We weren't going out, we were staying home, we were protecting ourselves, protecting our families, and a lot of people started to evaluate where they are in their life. And I think there's an opportunity here, if we get these investments correctly, the federal government, the state government, the local government, along with different cities and towns, to make investments to help people better themselves so the next career that they decide to go into, they actually have an opportunity to get into the middle class. That's the president's plan behind Build Back Better, moving people into the middle class. I spent seven years as mayor of the city of Boston. I spent a lot of time thinking about my communities of color, my black community and my Latino community and my poor white community. And how do we make life better for people 
that are living, paying rent, don't own a home, don't have any prospects of owning a home, trying to raise a family. How do we how do we make their life better? And it came down, honestly, to workforce development. It came down to making more investments in workforce development. It also came down to making investments in housing. That's not an issue that I necessarily have to deal with here as Secretary of Labor. But I think about the situation families living in. I'm going to work with, with, with Secretary Fudge about creating better opportunities for housing because people need – it's not just a job. It's about their life. It's about where they live. It's about where they where they put their head in the pillow. It's about what they can support their family with. So I think we we have to readjust what we're thinking of. We're coming. We're getting going through. I hope we are coming out of a once in a generation pandemic. Uh, and and I think the impacts of this pandemic uh, will be felt far and wide for quite some time. And, and the interesting thing about this, uh, you and I having this conversation today about the United States of America. But there are politicians and media and elected and appointed people in Europe that can have the same conversation, in Asia that can have the same conversation. This is a worldwide situation that's going on. Um, and speaking of worldwide, China. Um, China leads the world in manufacturing with more than a quarter of the world's production. So what can the United States, well, actually, what does the United States need to do to be more competitive globally? Is it all those things you're talking about or are there pieces um, that you haven't mentioned yet? Not, not to sound critical of my predecessors in the past here, but we should never have came, we should have never have gotten out of the industry. Uh, when you think about manufacturing, we should have stayed in the industry. You see in the solar panel space alone, uh, the, the need for, we have you know a couple of com com companies in the United States of America that build solar panels. We're so dependent on China for our solar panels, even though we want to lead the world when it comes to uh, clean energy and, 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 and you know, changing our economy moving forward, uh, changing our sources of power. Uh, we got out of that industry. So we, we, that's why it's going to take us a bit of time. And that's why when the president laid down his, his, his plan for increasing manufacturing, buying American, building American, this is going to take a little bit of time moving forward. But, but America, we have the technology, the ingenuity, and the brain power to be competitive with any country in the world. Well, this is a, a, a good segue to a question, an audience question. This coming from Texas. Uh, from a person in the honest name, Richard Bisk. How do we use technology to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States and reduce our dependencies on other countries? I think technology is going to be key to it. I, I think, again, uh, a lot of people are concerned about technology, uh, putting people out of work. But I think we're, we're, we're selling American people short if we don't think that people can't figure out technology and use it as a strength for us. I think technology is going to be going to be key for the future here. Um, you know, again, my, my experience in Boston when I became the mayor in 2014, uh, we really didn't use data on a daily basis. We changed the way we deliver services by simply using data. And then technology was a big part of that, moving us forward. So there's opportunities for us to, to for technology to, to, to be, we're still, we're a leader in the world still in technology, which is great. We just need to continue to stay in the, in the stay there in the future moving forward. Let's go back to the jobs numbers, because it, according to the September jobs report, um, 188,000 jobs were added in August, which was far a far cry from the half million expected uh, and predicted by economists. Why are these job jobs numbers still lagging behind expectations? Well, I think one of the biggest reasons is exactly the the, the topic. Two topics ago, we spoke about uh, people looking at their situation in life and realizing that that you know they're tired of working for a job that that is not fulfilling to them and and that they're not able to get into the middle class. I think that's one reason. 
Uh, I think another reason uh, is is people's concern of the coronavirus uh, in in the Delta variant more recently. Uh, you know, people worried about their health and their family's health. Over 800,000 Americans have lost their life during this pandemic, and, and that's real. Uh, and I think people are concerned. The, the political conversations around vaccines, which I don't understand how it turned political, but, you know, people saying that, you know, I'm not going to let the government tell me to get vaccinated. Meanwhile, people are dying uh, in, in, in our country every day because of, of, of the Delta variant or COVID-19. I think that's an issue. I think we also have an issue uh, during the pandemic, many of our childcare facilities in this country, and I can speak for my city where I was mayor in my state, uh, many of those childcare facilities had to shut down uh, because there was no revenue coming and kids weren't going into daycare because parents were working from home. Uh, some of those places didn't open up uh, and, and they're having challenges now hiring people because those are some of the same people that were working in low paying jobs, taking care of our most precious, our kids. Um, so we have child care issues in this country. Uh, I think that that's part of the issue. Uh, I think there's there's lots going on here, and I, but I think that we have to do is continue to take one step at a time moving forward. That's why I honestly feel that, you know, as Secretary of Labor, um, and, and I, might, I don't know if I would have said this a year ago because I wasn't as familiar with Secretary with this with this office, but but as Secretary of Labor, we have such an opportunity uh, and the resources available to make investments, targeted investments in key industries in our country and scale people up in a very short period of time for new careers. Uh, and I think that we have to do more work. And, and I've done this with Secretary Armando from Commerce. Um, I don't think the days of putting a line in the sand between uh, commerce and labor are over. We have to jointly work together because we're in this together. You know, you're, you just mentioned talking about people, um, you know, building new careers. Um, the mantra of the administration is build back better. But as we've gone through this, through the pandemic, through work from home, for those of us who can work from home, I'm, and we're a year and a half into this, um, into this new sort of work life. And I'm wondering from your perspective now, especially as Le Secretary of Labor, are we going through a, a realignment, not just in terms of the economy, but in terms of how we go about work, how the American people like, go to work, whether we are fully shifting from the nine to five or eight to four, the eight hour workday to one at, at a location, to one that is a hybrid of those two, say, of, of working in an office or working from home, or just simply working from home if you can. No, I think we're definitely going through an realignment here in the United States of America, in the world, in, in the way what our workplace looks like. I know that uh, probably right a month or two into the pandemic, many people were talking about our alignment would be would be working from home more. Uh, but there's been a shift here in this country and a shift in this world of of employment. And, and I think that, you know, it's going to take some time for us to figure out as we move forward here, what, do, what does that new workplace look like? What does that new worker look like in some cases? You know, you, I, I think back to uh, when the pandemic began, we had an administration here in Washington that didn't have a plan to deal with the pandemic. President Biden inherited that. He also inherited that last administration didn't didn't have any consideration to what's going to happen to our economy as we move forward here post pandemic. President Biden inherited that. 
the, the first two things the president did was come up with a, a very aggressive vaccination plan to get 100 million shots in, in, in the first 100 days. He, he surpassed that by 200 million shots. Uh, also, he put, put forth a plan to reopen society in the American Rescue Plan, an investment that, that we began to reopen our society and we started to see the numbers go down. Uh, then he followed that up with two other plans, the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is a physical infrastructure bill, roads and bridges and broadband access, clean drinking water, and then the Build Back Better agenda, the reconciliation package, thinking about the long-term impacts of our CARES economy, long-term impacts of our schools, our early early education, and also job training. So I think about, as, as we do this, the, 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 the one problem that, that we have to face with right now is the sense of urgency, uh, and we don't have the time to wait two and three and four years to figure out what's happening here. We we have that sense of urgency right now. And, and you know, at the Department of Labor, we I have a lot of great smart people around me right now that are having these conversations about what's going on in our economy. Because at the end of the day, it's kind of what I said in the beginning of the conversation, we need to make sure, when I call them essential jobs, I don't mean definition of essential jobs, but we need to make sure that our hospitality industries are open. We need to make sure that people are fed. We need to make sure that we continue to fill these manufacturing jobs. We need to con continue to fit, fill, fill these medical jobs, whether it's nurses or medical professionals or, or, or people that work in nursing homes. Those are the jobs that we need to continue to, to move forward on. And it, the, it'll adjust. But I think it's going to take some investment, uh, and 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 quite honestly, the federal government opening up the purse to make these investments in job training moving forward. Secretary Walsh, I want to pick up on on something, a phrase that you used, a sense of urgency, uh, in terms of getting things getting things done to um, to move the country ahead, and it. To my mind, it was an echo of something that White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said in an interview, I believe it was with the Pod Save America guys, where in, t in terms of talking about the reconciliation bill, about how there's this sense of urgency that they can't keep negotiating um, Democrats, negotiating with each other over what's in the reconciliation bill. From where you sit, does that sense of urgency that you, you're talking about also apply to what Jen Psaki is talking about in terms of a sense of urgency to get the reconciliation bill done so that those things you were talking about earlier, um, you know, housing and chi uh, child care and things that are in the reconciliation bill get passed on the president's desk for signature and then out to the American people. I agree with that 100 percent. I mean, I mean, there's no question about it. We're talking about infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, we're talking about the whole two packages that we're talking about, both the physical infrastructure, the construction that people can see and the infrastructure of laying down infrastructure for people's future livelihoods. And there is a sense of urgency because once those bills get passed, we need to get get those investments out the door. We need to get those investments into into states, into cities and towns, into workforce development. We need to get those investments to the American people as soon as possible uh, because we can't lose any more time. We need to continue to move forward. You know, every the first Friday every month we're going to have a jobs day, and you know, in the month of July I was able to I was able to be, I was really happy. Uh, in the month of August we had almost a million jobs. They end up over being a million jobs. That was great, but that doesn't mean you can sit back and rest on your laurels. You have to continue to move forward. The next two months I think was 243,000 jobs, and then last month was about 200. I, I don't have the exact number in my head right now. But we clearly have work to do. And it's not just the federal government work, it's all of us working collectively together. That means industry, business, government, we need to continue to work together. So if I heard you correctly, and I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but it sounded to me like your message to, to Congress and to 
congressional Democrats negotiating over the reconciliation bill, get it done sooner rather than later. The sense of urgency is now. You're going to get me in trouble, but uh, I, you know, that is what we need in America right now. Uh, those bills, uh, we will have never, whatever the number is in, in, in the reconciliation, re reconciliation package, whatever that number is, I don't remember any other time in the history of our country, well, maybe since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that we have made an investment in the CARES, in the CARES economy in our country, in child care, adult care, job training, as if that's going to that's gonna come out of that bill. All right, let me try to get you into trouble some more. <laughs> a couple of times I really you've mentioned. It. Thank you. <laughs> a couple of times you've mentioned um, your previous job, and that is that was mayor of Boston. Now you're the, the you're the secretary of labor. Which, well, first, um, you're the first uh, former union leader to run the labor department uh, in more than forty years. So, how has that experience shaped um, your views? on the employee-employer relationship? Well, I mean, as mayor, it's interesting. I had a different perspective. I was so-called management as mayor of the city of Boston. Uh, but when, you, when, you, when you're the mayor of Boston or when you're the secretary of labor, it's about respecting workers' rights and, and always appreciating workers. And I always have been a person that's been very appreciative of workers in this country and very supportive of workers in this country, whether I was negotiating for them or against them, uh, not against them, opposite them, uh, as mayor of the city of Boston. So, I mean, my lived experiences, all of my experiences have really helped me in this job that I'm in today. Um, and so then how different is it from being um, a mayor of a great city like Boston compared to being the secretary of labor at a national very level? Different. Very different in some ways. You know, I, I loved being a mayor and I love the mayors in this country because they're on the front lines. They're the closest people, the most, some of the closest elected officials to people, uh, and they have to respond instantly. Uh, when a crisis happens in your city, uh, you have to respond at that moment. You can't, you can't work through a process. Uh, here as Secretary of Labor, it's a little different, uh, but, but this job, as I think about the moment in time that we're living in, uh, you know, even though it's challenging and I get asked a lot of questions about what's happening in the, in the employment world, it's a very exciting, interesting time to be secretary of labor mm -hmm. because we're going i'm going through and we are my team here we're going through a time in the country that uh it's been probably a hundred years since we've gone through something like this and trying to work to make sure that we continue to support american workers and move america forward it's a, it's an incredible honored opportunity um secretary walsh um maybe folks know this uh but they're about to find out you are a huge boston red sox fan <laughs> and in about five hours, um, the Sox are going to start their American League Championship Series against the Houston Astros. Um, put on, put on your, your, your sportscaster's hat. Will the Sox go all the way to the World Series? And if they do, will they win the World Series? Uh, taking a line from one of my favorite NFL coaches, well, my favorite NFL coach of all time, we're going to take it one, one pitch at a time. Bill Belichick would say that, and we'll take it one pitch at a time, and, and I'll let you know in, in four, to, four to seven games. <laughs> that's a, that's a non-answer. If you're as huge a Red Sox fan uh, as I know you are, you must have some sense of how they're going to do. Well, if I, if, I get, if I have a minute here, just to explain something. Uh, when I got elected mayor of Boston in 2014, uh, I, I, I had a friendly bet with the mayor of Denver, Mike Hancock, 
that the Patriots were going to win uh, the um, AFC Championship against the Denver Broncos, and I lost, and I had to wear a Peyton Manning jersey. A few months later, the Bruins were playing in the in the in the semifinals against the Montreal Canadiens. I made a bet with the Montreal Mayor, and I lost. I had to wear a Montreal Canadian jersey. Uh, and then the following winter, Boston College was in a bowl game against Penn State, and I took I took BC, and we lost. I stopped betting. The next sport up was the Patriots versus Seattle. Uh, the Seattle uh, Seahawks. We won the we won the Super Bowl. I refused to bet. I refused to bet in the Atlanta game. We won the Super Bowl. I refused to bet in the LA game. We won the Super Bowl. We won a couple World Series. So I'm not. I'm not going there. <laughs> <laughs> We're already over time, but I got to ask you this: All those games that you you mentioned where you bet and you lost, were you in attendance? No, no. The 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 the, uh, the, the Montreal was in Montreal. They were all home, away games. Away games. Uh, so, okay. Uh, yeah, no, all away games. I, they, the AFC Championship game that year was in Denver. Uh, the Montreal game, I think it was game six. We lost in Montreal in the Penn State game. That was a bowl game. It was on New Year's Day. I forget where, uh, New Year's Eve. I forget where the game was, but we lost that game as well. So, so, and I asked that question because if the Red Sox do indeed make it to the World Series, are you going to, uh, you going to sneak off to go to one of the games? Listen, uh, let's we're gonna we're gonna we have to we, let's we're gonna t- focus on tonight and then and we'll, we'll fill we'll fill in later. I'm not breaking any news here. I, I'm gonna we're taking a one one inning one game at a, one pitch one inning one game at a time. What I but hear, I, Secretary Walsh, this, is- this team this team this team does seem to have something special going on. Uh, this Red Sox team it does remind me it reminds me of the 07 team. Uh, it reminds me of of, of the of the thirteen team. Uh, you know, '07 had some superstars. There's some there's stars in this team, but but they're playing as a team. And Alex Cora is is uh, he's an amazing manager. I'm grateful that he's back with the Red Sox. He he's just a, a good human being, uh, and uh, he has them he has them believing. And in sports, like anything, if you believe uh, that that's part of the battle. Well, Secretary Walsh, I am not going to ask you any more questions that will you know, tempt you to violate <laughs> your role of making predictions. Secretary Walsh, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming back to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having me. And I'll be back in a moment with an expert on how major technological innovations are dr- dramatically changing the manufacturing sector. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. I'm Barbara Humpton, President and CEO of Siemens USA. Joining me is Dr. Trey Herr, the Director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. Welcome, Trey. Good to be here with you. Over the last few years, the industrial sector of our country's infrastructure has seen an increased number of cyber attacks, as well as scrutiny from legislators and media. And sometimes the public isn't aware of how integrated their infrastructure already is with IT. We're past the point where you can operate a system on an island, so cybersecurity has to be a top priority for industrial companies. I can say it is here at Siemens. That's why we have over 1,200 cyber experts around the globe who coordinate closely with NIST, CISA, and other governing and collaboration bodies and advocate for international standards for cybersecurity as a founding member of the Charter of Trust. I know the Atlantic Council has been very active around cybersecurity and you lead the Cyber Statecraft Program. Would you tell us more about your work and your perspective on today's landscape of operational technology and cybersecurity? Absolutely. 
So the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlanta Council's role is to try and bring operational and technical expertise together with these sorts of strategic questions. Um, the hope from our perspective is to try to represent both the expert but also the user community in this conversation in a way that um, programs that are maybe more focused on just high policy or just strategy aren't necessarily doing. Uh, and so our, our principal areas of focus sort of fall into four buckets. The first is looking at the trust and the security of core technology systems like cloud computing and software supply chains. The second addresses the cybersecurity ramifications and workforce dimensions of the community, the people that we embrace and that we rely on inside of cybersecurity. The third looks at novel models for statecraft, so areas where states can learn from and more effectively engage um, from non-state actors as well as from traditional forms of conflict uh, that have fallen by the wayside. You know, so much of what we learn and the way that we think about state interaction is shaped by the nuclear era. And so we're looking to try to innovate in that space. But fourth and finally, most relevant to your question, is our work on safety uh, at the edge, the fiscal risk associated with operational technology systems. We've actually just released a report this week looking at maritime cybersecurity and trying to understand and provide recommendations to the US, its partners in the private sector and allies on how to better manage the risk of this incredibly critical transportation system and global energy network. So as I think about the operational technology landscape, the two things that jump out to me, one is that there is a rapid maturation taking place across firms that didn't necessarily previously see themselves as technology vendors or software developers, um, as they're becoming an increasingly important part of the attack surface. The second is as the public wakes up to and increasingly embraces the risk that comes from the digitization of all of these different critical operational technologies, they're starting to ask for and I think receive attention from both the public and the private sector to try and more effectively address those risks. It's fantastic that we're able to see the sort of gains and efficiency, the scale and the economy that comes from digital transformation, but it's now being accompanied by that sort of wave of understanding uh, that that risk is a challenge to be managed and one that needs both education, but also collaboration to do it well. Well, this is critically important to us, um, you know, not only in our traditional industrial applications, but in critical infrastructure. I'd love to delve a little deeper into the kinds of recommendations you have for mitigation of those risks. It's an interesting problem because when we think about operational technology networks, they're both very different from traditional IT in the way they're constructed and managed, but they're also converging at a rapid rate. The notion of back office systems and physical devices as being entirely separate is a very antiquated notion. So at a high level, I think there's, there's three basic things that companies can do as they're thinking about cybersecurity for their operational technology networks. The first is recognize that digital transformation is an invitation to learn more about these systems and make that knowledge more accessible across an organization. Part of the challenge in cybersecurity is visualizing, recognizing every asset, every part of a system that you're managing. Digital technologies allow for much closer to real-time understanding and tracking of those devices and sharing that information seamlessly across an organization. This is an opportunity, not just a source of risk. The second is firms need to plan, test, and simulate. Failure will happen. And resilience ultimately is leveraging those understanding, that understanding of a system, understanding of self to ensure that failure is graceful, predictable, and not catastrophic. Trying to prevent insecurity, trying to prevent 
an event um, is, a, is a, absolutely a pathway to failure. The third is not to plug and pray. Every device you add to a network, every bit of connectivity you add to an existing facility creates new attack surface. Tracking and securing these systems is an ongoing process, not an annual or a monthly checklist. So I think a lot of this comes back to really knowing, tracking, seeing, learning about the systems that you're putting into these facilities in order to defend them more effectively. Yeah, so a big factor here that we have to be aware of is the people. And our own Siemens Chief Cybersecurity Officer, Kurt John, recently sent a letter voicing our support for the Atlantic Council's proposal to implement the Department of Homeland Security's program titled Cybersecurity Workforce Development and Training Pilot for Underserved Communities. How can this program help us address the tremendous cyber talent shortage right now? A big part of what we are trying to do at the Atlantic Council through the Cyber 912 program and its next generation fund is to open up the aperture of cyber talent in two directions. The first is recognizing that not every person that steps into a technical role starts with a technical set of skills or even in a technical education. Um, and one of the things that we found is in some ways Cyber 912 uh, allows for teams that are mixing different backgrounds, different skill sets to be most competitive. And we think that that represents a really significant insight into the workforce of the future in this space. Not every single cybersecurity professional and IT service professional is gonna come from a computer science background. So we need to be able to tap a broader segment of the population. But the second is we know that there are skills in a much wider set of communities towards these issues that we're not tapping. Even if we can't change the percentage of people interested in these types of, of jobs, we can broaden the number of communities that we're recruiting from. And so our hope is that through specific targeted activities to try and pull more interest from those kinds of underserved communities to target uh, and support teams from new schools and coach and mentor, uh, that's gonna be opportunities to broaden that sort of workforce as those skill sets are evolving. So the DHS program you mentioned, and it's focused on practical application of that knowledge, as well as targeting underserved communities is exactly the right synthesis of need to try and address this shortfall. It's not a silver bullet. There are no silver bullets in the space, but it's an excellent starting point. But the, the need is urgent. And we learned from a 2019 ICS2 workforce study that the estimated shortage of cyber skills professionals is nearly half a million. And so clearly we need to dig into this work together. Trey, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much for sharing your insights. You as well. Thank you. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer at the Washington Post. Let's continue our conversation about manufacturing with Katie George, a senior partner at McKinsey and Company and an expert on the global manufacturing sector. Katie George, welcome to Washington Post, Washington Post Live. Thank you very much for having me. All right, you have written and researched a great deal about the manufacturing sector and what needs to be done to make America more competitive. Uh, earlier this year, you wrote, and I quote, a fresh sense of urgency and opportunities could give the sector momentum. How ought that manifest itself? Well, I think as you and the secretary talked about, you know, the future of America depends on sustainable and inclusive growth. And as Secretary Walsh said, technology is key to that. Um, and that is about shifting from 21st cent 20th century manufacturing to 21st century manufacturing, as you described. Um, we do have this really exciting window because um, 
the supply shortages and the lack of resilience in our supply chain has been you know, incredibly painful and damaging. Um, but the flip side is that it has really accelerated many companies' journeys to digitize and use automation and advanced analytics in modernizing their manufacturing and their supply chains. Um, when I think we, when some people hear automation, um, just to, to digress for a minute, when they hear automation, they hear, uh-oh, there goes my job. Why shouldn't the American labor force fear automation? This is actually, I think, one of the most important misconceptions or myths. Um, if you look at this, actually, the companies that have been on the forefront of the technology frontier have actually created more jobs. There are some types of jobs that will diminish in the size, but as companies are successful in driving productivity and growth, uh, they actually create more jobs, different types of jobs. And one of the pieces of work that I think is most um, interesting in this space is the work that we've done with the World Economic Forum, where we have identified what is now uh, about 90 different manufacturing sites or supply chains around the world that are really at the forefront of adopting Industry 4.0 or Fourth Industrial Revolution technologies, including automation. And what's so exciting is that all of these examples, all of them have been really marked with a worker centricity. They are all about actually supporting the frontline workforce, upskilling them and making their jobs easier. It's a, a bit like uh, what Secretary Walsh was talking about with his own father's experience in moving from uh, an industry where the workforce was doing kind of the, the dirty and the dangerous work to an industry where much of that was automated and the workforce can be leveraged uh, and really uh, empowered to do much more creative uh, and uh, more uh, human-centric work. Mm -hmm. Let's keep going down this road because you've said that the most mm -hmm. successful manufacturers are building their own onboarding and training programs for new hires. Give us a, a couple examples of that, if you would. Well, one of the um, companies um, that's in the, the Lighthouse Network that uh, we've established where we are you know, learning from each other, comparing notes, et cetera, I think said it really well, which is they are trying to move all of their operators to be technicians, to move all of their technicians to be engineers, and to move all of their engineers to be scientists. And they are doing it with several different kind of large-scale learning academies to actually build new skills and to really um, what we're seeing in all of these different examples and our most successful clients, it's the combination of bringing together core manufacturing capabilities with new data and analytics uh, and digital capabilities. Um, some of this is through formal academy kind of programs. Some of it is through uh, engagement with local community colleges and vocational schools. Um, some of it is actually quite interesting is actually uh, reverse coaching. So we have several examples where we've seen that companies are hiring uh, kind of new workforce in who are digital natives, and they are actually coaching kind of the existing workforce on how to use digital apps and tools in their work, even as the existing workforce who's been around a longer time uh, coaches the, the newcomers on the core manufacturing skills. Um, how I could... I'm 
two more um, uh, job questions here. How serious an issue is the so-called people shortage in the se in the sector? That there are thousands of jobs that need filling, but not enough people at the moment capable of doing the work. It is absolutely the biggest issue um, that the sector faces. Um, when we talk to the CEOs um, of uh, our companies, people is their number one issue. Um, and that's across the board, but particularly in manufacturing where frankly, some of the shortages that we're seeing now started pre-pandemic and they've just gotten worse. Um, one of the things that the manufacturing sector is trying to do is to really convince work. Looks like and, Katie, jo Katie uh -oh. George's signal. Oh, I hear you. Ah, there you are. Oh, no. You've run frozen. <laughs> okay, sorry <laughs> Start about from that. Start Okay, I was going to say that a lot of our, that people are our CEO's number one priority, that the job short, the worker shortages is a huge issue, and that one of the things that the companies in the manufacturing sector need to do and are working on is to convince American workers that manufacturing is an exciting high-tech industry with long-term career potential. Uh, and that's a real change in mindset uh, and the paradigm shift from kind of the manufacturing of Europe. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm going to move on to, to something a little different and still focus on your research. Uh, and your research shows that often companies struggle to deliver value with their new technology and get stuck in what you call pilot purgatory. Um, you say that is true of 74% of companies. What are they doing wrong? Well, many companies um, are trying to introduce these new technologies um, into uh, their uh, existing sites, and they're doing so kind of one technology at a time and with a very kind of technology forward approach as opposed to uh, really thinking through what is the business impact they're trying to have and what is the whole suite of technological solutions that would allow them to meet that business need. And so specifically what they're doing often we see is bringing in one technology, augmented reality. Let's all try augmented reality and then trying to track the impact of that? What's the return on the investment of that technology? And the problem is that that one technology alone doesn't transform the way work is done and therefore really transform operational performance and doesn't therefore lead to a big enough impact on the financial uh, performance of the company to justify scaling the technology everywhere. The companies that we're seeing that are most successful uh, take a specific area. That's why we call it lighthouses, and they take a specific area and they typically introduce 30 or 50 different technology use cases all at the same time. It's augmented reality paired with digital performance management, paired with using the, the data from that performance management system to do advanced analytics to improve yield, paired with uh, a digital solution to connect to the demand signal and really understand the total supply chain. When you put all of those things together, which sounds daunting, but can be done in a pretty pragmatic way, when you put all those together, you get real transformation in performance. And the companies who have been successful truly are resetting benchmarks. And what I think is exciting is they're resetting benchmarks on productivity and the output that they can achieve. At the same time, they're resetting benchmarks on flexibility and also on carbon emissions energy usage and sustainability. We're no longer seeing this trade-off between cost and flexibility, cost 
and sustainability. You can have it both, but you do need to figure out how to truly transform the way that work is done by bringing together the right suite of technical solutions. What I find interesting in the conversation that we're having and your answers to, to my questions is, I mean, with the exception of one time um, where you mentioned Secretary Walsh, your, all your answers are private sector focused. What the private sector is doing, should be doing, and nothing about the public sector, which makes me wonder, is there, is there something the federal government isn't, it, well, let me rephrase it. Is the federal government doing enough to help the manufacturing sector? Or is private industry, or is the private sector not even waiting for the public sector to come along and help or be a vital partner? The kind of shift that we're talking about making in the way manufacturing is done um, requires such a dramatic shift in workforce skill sets and preparation. This really will have to be a partnership between private sector, public sector, uh, and academia. Um, and one of the things that we see in the United States is that there are lots of great training programs, vocational schools, et cetera, um, that are trying to actually help manufacturers make this transition but it's pretty fragmented. Uh, and so having a really common strategy, uh, language, uh, skill credentialing uh, is something that could make a big difference in helping scale these capabilities uh, and really prepare the American workforce for the future. Uh, we have less than five minutes left, which means I wanna squeeze in this question, especially because it comes from the great state of Minnesota. This is a question oh. from Rick Garber. <laughs> And, and Rick asks, how are we going to get the next generation of workers interested in manufacturing? This is absolutely one of the most critical questions. Um, by the way, I have lots of family in Minnesota, so shout out to you. Um, but as I said, there is a kind of old fashioned paradigm of manufacturing being kind of very repetitive and difficult work. Uh, and actually you talked about, or you asked about whether the American worker should be afraid of automation as something that threatens uh, kind of the potential role in manufacturing. And although automation will disrupt some roles, it will also create new roles um, that actually are much more high tech uh, than the roles of the past. Uh, and frankly, not as repetitive. We can automate the repetitive stuff. We can automate the dirty stuff and the dangerous stuff. Uh, and if you do that, uh, the workforce of today in manufacturing really is operating in a high-tech environment. They're looking through augmented reality to be able to do much more uh, sophisticated work than ever before because they can actually be guided through kind of some of the decision-making and some of the instructions. Um, they're connecting not just to the kind of one part of the uh, uh, of the operation that they are in charge of, but they're connecting end to end with people around the globe, with around the country, with their customers, their suppliers, and making decisions about how to optimize. It's actually a very exciting profession, um, but it's one that uh, we do need to kind of augment uh, or supplement the uh, brand image. Um, Katie, you have family in Minnesota. I went to, I went to Carleton in Northfield, Minnesota. Oh. And, um, and and my in-laws have a lake house on Otter Tail. So where your where your folks? 
<laughs> uh, well, I have uh, family in Minneapolis and St. Paul, but my dad grew up in Litchfield, Minnesota. Oh, I've heard of Litchfield. Look mm -hmm. at this. This is like old home week. <laughs> it's old home week. And by the way, my favorite part of driving up, I grew up in Chicago and, and driving up to Minnesota, my favorite part was going through Darwin and seeing the largest ball of twine in the world. Have you seen that? <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> you have not seen the great sights of America, my friend. <laughs> well, next time I'm in I'm in Minnesota, I will I will absolutely do that. Katie George, we, uh, McKinsey and Company, we are out of time. Thanks so much for your time today and for coming to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.